The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Powell. About 10 years ago, something very special started to happen to Auckland. It went from a place of natural beauty with some people living in it to a city, from somewhere where visitors would come and you'd apologise for what it lacked, to a place with small emergent pockets that felt international. It's possible now to get off the train at Britomart, walk through the retail pavilions there, head to lunch at Hanoi, go to a meeting at CityWorks Depot, pop up to Ponsonby Road to San, and feel like you're in any great city. With these special spaces people love and beautifully crafted retail and hospitality where every detail has been sweated over and thought through. And if you have been to any of those places, you have Nat Cheshire and his and his father's studio to thank. They've been responsible for making, out of pretty much nothing, some of the most vital and interesting spaces that have in turn set off a new wave of confidence and creativity in the city. Nat Cheshire is fantastic at many things, without ever being confined to one discipline, instead cross-referencing and cross-pollinating to make things that are special yet humble. Unapologetically ambitious, but always generous, he is a wonderful writer, speaker, a self-described fake architect, product designer, branding practitioner, and optimist, and it's a pleasure to have him on the show today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Simon. I've been listening for so long. It's a pleasure to be talking. Ah, wonderful. Um, well, thank you very much for being here today. I'm very much looking forward to a chat. Tell me about what you studied, um, as an interest in your work is not really being confined to one area, and you started with art rather than architecture. Yeah, look, that was really um, extremely exciting for me as a, as a child. I grew up surrounded by uh, friends of my parents that were extraordinary painters. Um, and uh, being at art school was kind of exhilarating, but it also felt uh, a little bit small, a little bit constrained. And the closer I got to painting, uh, the further I got from it. And um, I'd grown up thinking that architecture was a kind of absurdity. I'd watched how hard Pitt had worked. And for what seemed to me to be very kind of uh, little, you know, holes in the ground, piles of bricks, this kind of thing. It's sort of, <laughs> it's a really, it's a, it's an art that's barely legible architecture. Um, and, uh, but yeah, the more time I spent with painting, the closer I began to feel to architecture. And eventually what I understood was that architecture was taking all of the ambitions that I had for art and dragging it out into the kind of brutal real world and trying to kind of keep it intact. And uh, that seemed kind of heroic and tragic and operatic and ultimately very exciting and so it just uh the focus just shifted and much more um 
difficult. You, you know, like you say, piles uh, of bricks and holes in the ground, but also the right to then have a million different um, uh, contingencies that could go wrong and people to rely on. And Yeah, I guess it depends on your point of view with respect to difficulty. You know, I watched um, extraordinary painters around us uh, battle their way through decades of um, obscurity and uh, work in kind of total isolation um, with a kind of relentlessness um, that I think... Uh, I don't know. I still, I still deeply respect. It's just a different kind of difficulty. But yeah, architecture, it's a whole nother ball game. And by and large, the world doesn't want it to exist. It makes everybody's life harder. Uh, you know, in the end, it makes it more extraordinary. By the time we're finished, um, almost everybody is grateful for it. But uh, in the making of it, it's not really wanted. And so at 20, you decided to set up your own studio uh, in your parents' house in the spare room. And you, were you still studying at that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just really fucking impatient, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and how, how do you go about doing that? You set up the studio and, 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 and tried to get um, some projects. And were you doing, were you at architecture school by then? or? Yeah, yeah, look, I was. And uh, I mean, uh, the subtext of all of this is just, you know, like I'm standing on the shoulders of a giant. And um, I... Because it was around and because technology at that stage was so kind of n novel, I taught myself AutoCAD, this kind of draft, primitive drafting software at that time, when I was like, I don't know, 9 or 10 or 11 or something. And by the time I was a teenager, I was doing uh, kind of CAD work in my school holidays. And uh, by the time I was at university, I was kind of able to pick up some of the cast-offs that didn't quite fit Pip's practice, just little kind of ensuite conversions or a deck or a garden fence or whatever um, and and uh, make those into my own projects. You make it sound like Minecraft or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of, it's got the, it's got the magic of Minecraft. I still remember, you know, the, the garden deck and the fence, um, uh, they were for a really close um, friend of ours, Stephen Bambury, a painter, and he and I spent, I don't know, nine months talking about every single bolt and screw and piece of timber in, the, in that one deck and one piece of fence. And I still remember the night before uh, the builders arrived, just waking up at two in the morning and thinking, fuck, these guys are going to turn up tomorrow and they're going to take these drawings that I've made and they're going to, like, build from them as if I know what I'm doing. Um, and that was both kind of terrifying and exhilarating you know that you, that you could have those those conversations and have these things exist in your mind and then one day they become real is, is that like the moment when um i don't know when, when we took our, our kids back from the hospital the first time and you leave and you're like well we can't leave we don't know anything <laughs> and then and then you think hang on no one's even known anything this is this is quite liberating precisely yeah that, that's exactly the moment yes yeah, and, and when you decided to then... Um, and that just that just scales up, right? You know, like we're building this this tower in the city now. And, um, you know, the guy that's that's running it in our studio, his last project was a um, cafe in his tallest building as a two-story batch in Mangafai. And yet he's probably, I think, the most potent architect I've ever seen work at that scale. Is it? Yeah, it's so exactly the same. Yeah, is, is there a little bit of um, a benefit to that where if you know that you don't know things, maybe you work a bit harder to find out how to do them Correctly? Oh, uh, fundamentally. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think uh, architecture is, is kind of, I don't know, it requires hubris leavened with fear. And the fear is a really kind of critical part of it. <laughs> yeah. And that decision, so you you, um, you ended up starting uh, Cheshire 
the, the studios with your father. And I mean, I guess that must be, you know, you said that you grew up on the, in the, in the shadow of a giant and, um, you, you know, uh, him being a, a very uh, successful architect doing wonderful work. Was it a difficult decision to go in with him? Uh, and is that maybe, you know, part of not having um, called yourself an architect or become um, registered as an architect? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a mixed metaphor because uh, both in the shadows but also on the shoulders of mm. um, that giant. And uh, it was a difficult decision but only for a very short space of time. And eventually what I kind of reasoned was that, um, yeah, I was I was terrified of spending the rest of my life in the shadow. The architecture is littered with the, the children of great architects um, whose names we've never known. And... Uh, uh, I felt like I was finally gaining momentum in my own uh, practice. The work I'd done with Stephen I was really proud of. I thought I could publish it, and I thought that was the beginning of something for myself. Um, But in the end, what I realized was that if I was good enough, it didn't matter whose kid I was. And if I wasn't good enough, I I should just be grateful for the opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. and I guess with something like architecture, you know, people don't just go around giving um, people huge projects to do without some kind of um, lineage or trust or, or supervision uh, in the in the early days. Yeah, look, I've definitely exploited that. Um, y- you know, I think uh, combining kind of um, uh, the kind of confidence and and boldness of Silver here with the kind of uh, uh, bravado of youth is not a bad little mix and um, yeah, I've definitely leveraged the shit out of that. <laughs> There's a wonderful story in a piece that you wrote um, and delivered at Semi Permanent that um, people are able to find online. Uh, it's on the noted website and we'll pop a link up to it. Oh, you, got it, you, could, you should watch it rather than read it. It was a speech. It wasn't intended to be read. It's weird in words. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's a, it's a great piece, and you tell the story in it about, um, and and I wonder how much of it is is true, and how much of it is a little bit of license about getting a call one day at lunch when everyone, when the grown ups, as you put it, were out, and it was uh, one of the developers interested, um, one of the entrepreneurs interested in making interesting things happen in the city, and you 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 jumped in and, and went and saw him before anyone could kind of say no, and that set off all of these waves. How how true is that story, and how did it go? Oh, I, ne- I never lie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's completely true. You know, we just um, we went furiously, and um, yeah, I just I just didn't stop ever. Um, and uh, yeah, it was um, uh, the phone rang. It was uh, one of the construction managers from um, Brindamart. He had a young guy there that had a little bar in a laneway uh, who wanted to make a bigger bar in a big um, munted old building. And um, the economy was as munted as the building, and so uh, people like this kid had a voice all of a sudden, mm-hmm. and. Um, I actually wasn't terribly excited about going down. The, the guy just needed somebody, and there was no one else around. So I was like, "Fuck, okay, I'll go." Um, but when I met this this kid, he just, um, uh, yeah, he looked like he was ready to punch a hole through the city, and uh, he looked like he had the intelligence and the kind of um, the grit to deliver on that intent. And so I just kind of packed everything I had behind behind him, and um, uh, almost everything I have now is, is built on that moment. That's amazing. And how did that? unfold as he wanted to do a bar that ended up becoming 1885. Yeah, correct. And um, he introduced me to um, uh, some friends of his, uh, Tony McGeorge and Krishna Bodica, that um, wanted to make a little Vietnamese restaurant in a Mantado building. And they were really kind of um, visionary, both of both of those groups. You know, Brittamart at that time was not Brittamart. It was like a gravel pit car park. Um, uh, it was not 
a place um, and it was a really brave thing uh, to open especially a restaurant there but um, let alone a kind of I guess an, an sort of four or five hundred person super club um, and um, uh, again I, I just kind of um, maybe f- sort of fudged the truth a bit about what I was capable of and, and made up for um, that by um, sitting up all night uh, each night until I'd solved the, solved the problems that I didn't otherwise have the tools to solve and so that meant going from having uh, done small-scale projects to Han- Hanoi. Was that the first big project that you put together for, for Britta Mart? Yeah, although 1885 um, was was much, much bigger. Hanoi was the first that opened, but only by about eight or nine days. And very quickly those things multiplied into the conversion of those two whole buildings. And so I'd done an apartment fit-out um, before I was doing it concurrently, and that was about the biggest thing I'd done. And suddenly there were these two hulking, great, dripping five-storey crumbly old brick buildings crawling with big burly adults um, <laughs> uh, who knew much more about what they were doing than I did. Um, and um, uh, But it was just a kind of um, a profoundly energising time. I was, I was terrified. I was living in the city uh, in Lawn Street in this little tiny one-room apartment and uh, I would get up at four and I would meet these guys on uh, site and we would um, make things up and then I'd spend the rest of the day kind of trying to figure out how to patch up the um, the kind of and, and, and make legitimate the, the bullshit that we had invented in the morning um, <laughs> and then kind of start the cycle again in the morning. And, and how much of that is because you were dealing with the heritage buildings and having to work around uh, what, what was there? I mean, and, and having to also kind of establish a style and a feel as you went as it may seem kind of, you know, um, once things are done, they seem like they would always be that way. But it, it was certainly not a given that there'd be cool uh, places that, that, that honoured the heritage in that area, as we'd done nothing as a city except to spoil our heritage yeah. in that area. Yeah, and look, I think yeah. I found it profoundly challenging. I'd come out of architecture school, I'd come out of this apartment project, um, this history of painting, where um, I had a lot of ideas about what architecture was and should be and what the, what, what the future was and, and how we might drag it there. And um, that ran headlong into the realities of making a place that I'd want to sit with my friends for four hours on a Friday night and slurp noodles and and, uh, and drink mezcal. And uh, uh, yeah, what I, where I was going, the trajectory that I saw for, for architecture was almost diametrically opposed to, um, to what these people believed was necessary to make a really, really successful space for humans to enjoy their lives in. And in the end, I realised that... Um, that they were right and I was wrong. And um, uh, I had to do a really kind of robust and rapid kind of re-engineering of what I thought architecture, yeah, what I thought it, w- it was and what it was for uh, and what it kind of looked and smelt and tasted like. And um, uh, that was the beginning of a, a kind of complete reshaping of architecture around uh, a kind of empathetic humility that says that um, the software of um human desire and, and, and use is far more important than the kind of uh, hardware of uh, aesthetics that we come kind of preloaded with. Yeah, and, and the way that that um, evolved in your practice and, and in the studio that you and your father built up around you was to step out of just kind of making the, the physical relationship with the building and step into product design and branding and uniforms and, uh, you know, colours and, and, and really become kind of like uh, an entire experience engineer. Yeah, look, I think, I mean, and Britain might have afforded this, us that opportunity because it's, it's kind of, you know, so far it's a decade and a half long project and it, and it kind of continues. And it allowed us to operate at scales that ranged from kind of, uh, you know, nine block 
urban kind of master planning that kind of dealt with the way that streets were oriented and uh, what uses went where and so on. But um, uh, through that work that we'd, we'd started at 85 in Hanoi, um, allowed us to kind of climb right down into the little basement cocktail dens and uh, choose the teaspoons and the napkins and all of those sorts of things. And yeah, you know, design and code some of the websites and um, try and uh, create for people this kind of completely um, immersive, coherent experience of a, of a place. Um, and, you know, one of the things that had kind of frustrated me early was uh, the way in which um, the kind of the singularity and strength of a bold vision was diluted by um, multiple handling by multiple parties. And I thought that if, um, you know, I thought architecture was so fucking hard that if you could do that kind of well, you should be able to do all this other stuff too. So we just tried. And, and, it can, and, and you know, they exploded onto the scene. I mean, yeah. anyone who um, knows Auckland over the last kind of 10 to 15 years knows, um, like, Mexico was like nothing Auckland had seen, like so vibrant and like a cacophony and energetic and beautiful and and, and just so much. Yeah, yeah look, it just, and, the, you know, the first, two or three nights of Hanoi was the revelation um, and then 1885 just took that revelation and just knocked it into another league um, and I you know when 85 uh, when Hanoi opened there was no kind of denizen there were no kind of blogs there were you know no reviews had come out uh, there was no PR I don't think we'd yet painted the sign outside the front door we just opened it on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday night and by like the next night people were turning up at eight o'clock nine o'clock for dinner and uh, Hector who was the major day at that time was just like oh I'm sorry there's a um, three-hour waiting list, and people are like, okay, you yeah, put me on the list. And I just, I hadn't kind of, I personally hadn't felt that before. And then um, uh, because they exploded um, with such kind of impact, um, uh, yeah, they rippled really, really fast. And so uh, BCC followed quickly, and then Mexico, and then, you know, a billion others. And um, in all of those projects, i got to be really clear, like Mexico, I barely did anything for Mexico. You know, like I just turned up and participated. Like I probably spent more time on the end of a hammer drill um, smashing our way through concrete than I did at the drawing board for that project. They became projects of participation and kind of collaboration and conspiracy rather than um, architecture as a kind of professional discipline as, I, as I'd known it. Um, and so much so that, you know, by the time we um, uh, we opened this little rest, uh, cafe, Oaken, last year, which is now sadly closed, um, but which I loved, and uh, that entire cafe was made out of um, about a half a dozen conversations and one drawing on the floor with um, with a builder's pencil. Like, there's no documentation whatsoever. <laughs> and that is such a, a rare opportunity. And, you know, there must be people who go their entire careers and... Um, you know, make a million drawings and one building. You know. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're we're so we're so fortunate. And one of the things, you know, like I really determinedly didn't leave New Zealand. I didn't go and have an OE. And almost everybody I knew when I was growing up, you know, they were so disappointed by Auckland as I was, but so disappointed by it that the obvious thing was to uh, was to leave. And they went and gathered extraordinary experiences from cities like Seoul and. Uh, mm. New York and 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 so on, um, but I my response to that kind of disappointment um, was to kind of uh, was to attack it, and I guess what I realised quite quickly was that um, uh, I was attacking it in a little bubble of time that was um, really uh, kind of um, latent with potential. I felt like there was this kind of door in the sidewalk that. Uh, 
everybody was kind of walking past and if you just opened it and happened to step through it then there was kind of untold bounty on the other side and you've written and talked before about the the kind of circumstances that came together to allow there to be that that possibility, which, um, you know, between the, the global financial crisis, meaning that there's a, a, a change in, um, you know, who gets to do things and who has the appetite for risk, the super city, meaning that there was suddenly um, one kind of uh, organisation with this vision. And also, like like you mentioned there, the, the global citizens returning home. Yeah, look, it, it just it was, in a, in a perverse way, it was one of the best things that ever happened to um, Auckland as a, as a kind of city. Uh, you know, it was incredibly painful for us uh, commercially and, uh, you know, as, as human beings uh, by extension. But at the same time, uh, it toppled and reversed uh, the hierarchy of change in the city. And all of a sudden, um, a kid with a really great food idea could get their hands on some of the most uh, promising kind of real estate in the city and make something of it. And um, all of a sudden, uh, the men and women at the top that owned and controlled that stuff um, weren't able to just kind of set a direction, employ some consultants and go and do it. They actually had to kind of get granular with, with those with those people. And um, as you said, you know, that was, that was kind of uh, amplified and accelerated by this... Um, uh, influx of sort of reversing of the brain drain um, uh, that created both the kind of you know return the intellectual capital from global cities that um, constructed a supply model that gave us projects like Hanoi um, but also created an expectation of a way of living in a city uh, that once it found those things just devoured them. And the pockets then set off other pockets. Yeah. So, you know, while, you know, and, and this is a very funny use of only, while you only might have developed, you know, nine books of Britomart, that nine books of Britomart meant that people in the pockets all around the city were like, wow, we need something that is as cool and vital and international as that. Yeah, and look, the, I mean, the first thing to be clear about is that um, the nine blocks are not ours. You know, pretty much an enormous part of my story, but I'm only a bit part of it. Mm. But um, uh, it, it, uh, it always, in my mind, uh, was never about fighting for Britomart itself. It was about fighting for Auckland. And the idea was that Britomart would be an epicenter for um, broader change that the city just couldn't um, ignore. And f- essentially, that's, that's what happened, that by the time... Um, the full kind of potential and trajectory of, of Britomart was manifest. Um, you couldn't really be a developer in the city anymore and not uh, take note of that. The, the kind of the thing had reconfigured the market, and that's what was um, that was what was most exciting. That all of the metrics have changed, and once you've changed um, that kind of market behaviour, the thing becomes self-sustaining, and you get um, uh, wonderful um, developers like. Um, uh, Fillmore, for example, taking a lump of shitty old stuff on the back end of Fort Lane and making an Imperial Lane because yeah, of yeah. Um, you know because all of a sudden it's got a, a place to be and a reason to exist. And um, these extraordinary young guys, James and Simon, who owned a car parking business and stole um, what is now the City Works depot from uh, a distressed bank, and um, you know probably made it work from car parking on day one, but said, "Hey, we don't have we don't have Peter's money, but." Um, we love what you've all done down there. Maybe you could help us do something let, similar but poorer up here. Let, let's talk about that because Britomart, although you know it had, um, it, it it was at the base of the city and it was between 
the harbour and the financial district. And so even though it had been neglected for for years and only existed because developers ran out of money to bowl the last buildings down, you know, like it, it, it kind of was a thing that was ready to be revitalised. But the City Works Depot, the, the sheds uh, uh, on Wellesley Street there, like they'd never had any kind of... Um, uh, role in the city or place that people went. How do you approach a challenge like that? Um, well, firstly, to go back to Britama, I think um, uh, the reason that it came to exist was not so much that people ran out of money, but that the people of Auckland rose up and um, revolted and essentially threw out an entire um, city council um, on the basis of what it was planning for Britama. And we got terrifyingly close to... Um, uh, an appalling, uh, uh, appallingly different outcome for for Britomart, but it was the people of the city that themselves stood up and um, and turned that tide back. And um, we just, um, I think, as a city, we probably would have been permanently fucked, or at least set back kind of twenty or thirty years um, if that change had not been um, made. And so, um, you know, I'm just uh, I'm at the tail end of an extraordinary kind of genealogy of resistance um, and agitation that empowered that, that transformation. But yeah, City Works Depot, I don't know, like I, I dismantled myself so much um, in the making of Britain. I was really unsure as to um, whether I was actually capable of anything or whether I was just riding on the coattails of a lot of extraordinary people. You know, I've become a kind of um, an agent provocateur and a kind of choreographer and a, a conductor of what felt like the brilliance of others. And um, uh, I mean, you know, fundamentally, my whole practice is still based on that um, idea, but City Works Depot, yeah, it was this, this opportunity to kind of see whether we could pull that off from scratch. And um, uh, with a client that wasn't a sophisticated real estate developer with mountains of capital um, and uh, with not a kind of, um, uh, you know, with, with nothing on the kind of ground to, to leverage. And um, that was really uh, exciting. And one of the most exciting things about it was just that these these young owners, uh, they were up for that, that challenge. You know, they were as, as kind of um, uh, mercantile a set of capitalists as, as, as um, you might uh, expect, but they really, they really wanted to do something extraordinary with that if they could. They didn't see those two things as being kind of incompatible realities. Um, and so... And, and if, if only every, um, you know, company that had made money out of car parking and, um, you know, giving people fines and clamps would use that money to then redraw, you know, huge car parks into great urban experiences. And also they've then gone on and been responsible for Osborne Lane and a bunch of other cool things that, you know, you know, if only every car, car park operator did that. Yeah, and look, I think, I mean, again, a bit like the... Um uh, the crazy kid with the bars and pretty much, you know, the the fact that uh, it was a hospitality business was almost incidental to the kind of um, intelligence and energy um, kind of sitting in that in that human. And I think um, for James and Simon, it was uh, it was similar. That car parking was just kind of um, get, uh, opportunistic. Yeah, cash flow. Yeah, for sure. It's something that they started as as probably I think as students and just like holy shit it worked and they just they rode it really hard um, and made something really big of it but that didn't mean that they were born to be car packer no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, and um, you know they're citizens of their own city and really engaged citizens of their own city and actually it was Osborne Lane that had come first that they had engaged um, some really great heritage architects they'd done started some really um, sophisticated refurbishment of the old buildings but were really unsure as to how that was going to coagulate into a place and um 
Uh, I met them about halfway through the construction of that. Um, we tried to kind of re-steer it in a direction that would kind of uh, cohere it um, in, in some kind of exciting and meaningful and lasting way. And that was really brutal. Like our world was really unfamiliar to those guys. And um, I still remember presenting the first drawings to a kind of to a kind of degree of incomprehension and amazement that that this thing might have been made by our own hands um, for them. You know, it was, it was a kind of ground-up relationship. And there were um, a lot of times when I think they were probably ready to throw us out the door, and there were a lot of times when, um, uh, yeah, I, I kind of wondered whether we'd last the distance. But, um, you know, architecture, it's sort of, it's made for for those for whom um, kind of giving up is way harder than trying, as Kanye West so <laughs> kind of uh, elegantly puts it. And um, we just kind of kept pushing together and it's still quite a difficult um relationship at times um but uh i think for both of us it's it's kind of profoundly rewarding and that's you know and with those projects like city works depot you're you're not just kind of creating office space but also like the mix of tenants the the l browns uh best ugly bagels the the things that get people through the door and that kind of like master planning or urban design kind of element is another thing that's really interesting about the the work that you do yeah and look i think i um i don't really know how to be an urban designer i think um you know one of the things that i um proposed to Simon and James right at the very beginning was um, that we not have an urban design or a master plan and that um, uh, we had this extraordinary building and this kind of uh, haphazard infrastructure and, and so on um, and we kind of seen in Britomart how extraordinary things could be if you grew them on a kind of step-by-step basis rather than you know if you look at uh, the large format uh projects of, of um, urban transformation that preceded it, things like Prince's Wharf, you know, they were kind of identified and um, designed and leased and funded and documented and built over, I don't know, half a decade, a decade, something like this. And then, you know, one day the mayor comes and cuts the ribbon and it's finished and everybody walks in. Pretty much was just kind of completely the opposite of that. Peter's kind of mantra of, you know, baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. It let us make one tiny move and make it quite boldly, and then uh, step back and look at what happened, and then make the next step in response to um, and the impact of the first. And so, um, we argued really clearly at Britomart, uh, sorry, at, at CityWorks Depot to just um, to just make a start to find somebody um, really extraordinary, put them in a space, show the city just a tiny glimmer of how extraordinary it could be, work out what was good about it, work out what was good bad about it, and then make make the next step. And so it's that thing, that human thing, that, um, the software programming of a place um, that is of um, the utmost importance and of greatest uh, interest to us as a studio, that I think um, the hardware of um, urban design, um, what things look like, what proportion they are, what you know, what they're made of, all of this kind of stuff, whether they're beautiful or not. I'm just kind of profoundly disinterested in that until, at least until the software is written and that software is human. And so um, uh, the process is uh, at the outset one of um, uh curating the right kind of collections of um, humans and, and their endeavours so, such that they kind of collide off each other in a way that's really energising. And so, yeah, we had really early on um, wonderful little um, brief productions and, and kind of content studio um, and uh, Al and uh, Food Truck Garage and Y&R and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, everything multiplied out from there. And you'd, the wonderful thing about it was that 
um, within about two or three months, you'd, you'd walk past and sitting in the cafe would be our meeting with talking about a kind of campaign that they were going to do or a show that they were going to do. And um, it was a little, you know, the place had become a collider of um, ideas and ambitions. And that was, that was really, that's really exciting. That's, a, that's rewarding. And, you know, uh, in the context of that site, it wasn't just any um, any site either. It had been the undoing of some very serious developers, as had Britomart in the past, yeah. you know. And and this, these, these were actually... Um, you're very brave places to go in and and try and um and and try and make work. Yeah, look, absolutely, and I think um you know one of the things about Britomart was that it benefited from um, uh, Peter's confidence and certainty coming out of uh, a couple of decades um, making work in the states. You know, he's a um, a young. Māori boy from Kaitaia who has done as much commercially as he might possibly do in this country, um, left with a family in tow, gone into um, the US and built a, essentially a city in Texas from the desert up. And so by the time he came back, um, uh, he knew what it took and he knew he knew what a place like Britomart was capable of. And so, um, uh, and he was really, really good at finding extraordinary people and empowering them to do uh, great work and not getting in the middle of that. You know, he sort of... Um, took this kind of high-level um, thought leadership uh, and uh, almost perversely this incredibly granular concern about um, the paper bag that the sandwich was served in, but, you know, in between left it to great um, to great people. But so Brunemart had the benefit of that. Um, City Works Depot was kind of leveraging the fact that Brunemart had worked. Um, and, uh, yeah, look, it had been the undoing of um, of great people. We'd, we'd designed... Um, a couple of really substantial buildings for that site. Uh, the developer um, who was setting out to make this place called Rhubarb Lane um, was setting out to do a really good thing in a really smart way and just um, uh, ran headlong into a, a GFC that um, he could not have predicted or yeah. done anything about um, and and just got kind of smote by it. Um, but, you know, one of the interesting things was that um, uh, there had been burbling in the background this kind of growing awareness that this lump of leaky old sheds that was about to be demolished um, was actually kind of interesting. And, yeah, there, uh, there were some wonderful fashion shows there oh, before absolutely. it all kicked off. Shit, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was just this kind of... And it seems extraordinary now that Auckland could be like this. Like, I don't know how big City Works is. It's like three or four hectares or something. But there's three or four fucking hectares in the middle of the city. And by and large, it just didn't exist. You know, we just moved past and around it. But what we, what we thought by the time we arrived there was that strategically it was kind of super critical that if you could nail that thing, that you'd bridge in almost one step uh, the central city and that kind of inner western fringe of uh, Victoria Park and Freeman's Bay and Ponsonby and Grayland beyond that and start to build a kind of continuum. And I guess that's part of a, a kind of macro strategy that we had for Auckland as a, as a kind of city at street level at least, that um, if Britomart and City Works and Imperial Lane and you know, all of those sorts of projects were about building an archipelago of islands in which uh, each island was defined by kind of reasonably large lumps of aggregated real estate, carefully curated, carefully executed. Uh, then the, the next step was to kind of, you know, ensure that those islands were placed strategically at, you know, at really critical points. And then the, the final step was to just kind of bridge between them, you know, um, uh, bridge the bearing straight with solid land. And, and you have been talking throughout this about the kind of, you know, the software, the human element and how even in these large projects, it's actually about the way that people 
relate to the spaces and, and love them. And, uh, and, 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 you know, uh, in amongst all of this, you know, very large scale commercial projects, um, there's the home of the year, which you designed, uh, the, the, the two cabins uh, in Kaipara Harbour. And, and many people would have seen these images. They're the, the kind of blackened uh, small squares in this beautiful kind of um, grassy landscape. And they're these, these beautiful little um, monoliths and have so much kind of, um, yeah, so much privacy. And this idea of the, the humble yet special uh, is, is so beautifully expressed in them. T- tell me about kind of... Um, yeah, what, what, what's different about approaching a, a, a really personal, small-scale project like that? Mm. Oh, everything and nothing. Um, yeah, they were they were really they're still really special projects for me. Um, uh, I had met this um, uh, really beautiful young man um, walking out of an, the apartment fit out that I'd done at the very beginning um, as I was walking in, and he said, um, "One day you're going to have to make a house for me," and then you know. Four or five years later, um, he he came back and said, "It's not a house, but um, how about we do this little thing?" And um, I think uh, what was similar was that by then um, I had dismantled myself so much, um, and uh, I understood how much he had to contribute to the making of that place. Um, but also, I had carried in latent in me a whole lot of things out of a decade of uh, thinking about. Um, art and um, architecture in, in its kind of original sense relative to my own life, um, that all of a sudden had a kind of place, had a kind of relevancy that they didn't otherwise have in the city. And um, what I really wanted to do in that landscape was to make um, uh, make little homes that didn't look like houses, uh, to make kind of objects that were so uh, kind of profoundly unfamiliar that you would kind of blink and when you opened your eyes again you'd see them for what they were rather than the shorthand that we have for um, seeing the badge in that case for example you know that you wouldn't have the little mono pitch and the exposed rafters and the front door and the indoor outdoor fucking flow and all of those sorts of things that you just um, would confront something that was sort of scaleless that had no uh, yeah none, none of those kind of um, bits of um, uh uh, kind of orthodox um, syntax of built into them, like big windows, for example, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know. or, or a front door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You've got to climb in through the window, you know, like, like a, a harbour, a harbour view, which is not a huge wall of glass. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just, um, I'm so, so grateful to um, my kind of patron collaborator for um, uh, not just kind of empowering us to pursue a project that was that sort of aggressive with the orthodoxy but also actually kind of um, provoking that and um, yeah the idea that you might kind of walk through that long you know leave your car behind and walk through that long grass and clamber up some boulders and climb in through a window into a completely kind of black space you know it's like being in a a drop of ink or an outer space because it's so dark you can't see the junction between the walls and the ceiling Um, uh, and have this kind of very uh, unfamiliar experience of being in the New Zealand landscape. Um, uh, yeah, that, that that was an extraordinary privilege, and in some ways, it's sort of it's the only project I've ever done that I've been um, satisfied with, and or that I can spend time in in peace. You know, everything else I see all of the other possibilities that we uh, squandered, or that I still yearn to kind of 
to see. Um, but there, it was so small, it was like making a piece of cabinetry or making, making a piece of furniture. You know, we could, we could touch every corner, we could touch every every millimeter. And um, uh, yeah, I, I sit there now, and um, yeah, it's, it's one of the few places in the world where I feel at peace. Is it very satisfying as well to having done so much work revitalising old things or making new out of old or taking kind of existing constraints to then be able to make something where nothing's existed and where nothing has ever been quite like those things. Like if if, if you haven't seen, friendly listener out there, if you haven't seen these pictures, you must look them up. The inside, um, when it was just saying it was dark, uh, you, you know, actually like black dark inside, like the opposite of what, you know, um, any first thought would be for what you'd do with a, a, a vista and a view like that. Yeah, and I just, um, I mean, one of the things about it is just, you know, about all of this is just how... Um, accessible the extraordinary is you know there's a little these are little projects that um cost you know the price of a, a mid-range audi um at the time you know they're, they're um they're super s- simple little things but they just required somebody who um was prepared to buy a bit of rejected farmland in the Kuiper rather than a bit of coastal kind of waterfront property in um uh Omaha or something, and um, who was prepared to split that with a friend because they couldn't afford it on their own, and who was prepared to invest totally in the extraordinary rather than in the amenity. And if that meant that they would, in the winter, they would walk outside um, naked and stand on a boulder under a stream of of hot water um, and shower outside rather than inside, then they were fucking up for that. As long as you know, as long as the thing was extraordinary, and um, yeah, there's just um, there's there's opportunities built into that um, that. Uh, aren't accessible anywhere else, um, but uh, they are accessible, you know, just just extraordinarily so. And that is surprisingly um, accessible. I can't imagine that many um, homes of the year cost, you know, on that level uh, of of attainability. Yeah, I'll, 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 yeah, and, and, and you know, <laughs> there's the, um, the, the yeah, attainable in that relevant scale. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, relative to the, the yeah. homes of the year, yeah, it's definitely yeah. an anomaly. But um, uh, but it's you know, it's attainable to a, a kind of uh, a small sliver of privileged business owning kind of humans in New Zealand. Um, uh, but as with all of the work, we have to see that as kind of. Um, uh, as 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 kind of prototypical in that space, um, and uh, we have to then um, remember our responsibility to kind of take all of the things that we learn and the and the weapons that we accrue along the way, and to um, and to start pretty rapidly wielding those in a fight for a, um, a broader broader slice of um, our own humanity. And a place where that becomes really interesting, you know, having um, worked on these big scale projects around kind of re-energising public spaces and, you know, almost like the, the plaza idea, places where people will want to live in a city because Auckland was missing plazas. It was missing places where people could, um, could, could kind of congregate and enjoy their time. If you think back 10 years ago, it was like... Aotea Square was like <laughs> the gold standard, you know, yeah. and 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 it, it's phenomenal how much that, that 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 that's changed now. But I still wonder, you know, if the the other element of great cities, you know, really great dense uh, high, high density kind of apartment dwelling, or even a, a kind of um, appreciation that maybe apartments are a good idea to live in, is still is still something that's got a bit of a 
uh, the wave is is starting, but it's still it's still got work to do. Yeah, and look, I think as much as the kind of plaza thing, I think you know, Lizzie and I lived in this tiny one room um, apartment uh, in a little old building on Lawn Street for seven or eight years, and um, we adored it there. But there was literally in the city there was one place that maybe. I could buy a tomato. Mm. And, um, you know, whether or not I had Altier Square or Albert Park to treat as my kind of, um, as my living room, all of the rest of that infrastructure just didn't exist. And um, one of the interesting things about Britomart when you kind of um, uh, compare it with uh, North Wharf, for example, is that um, its public space is actually really kind of still uh, kind of ad hoc. Um, And most of the streets are still kind of bubblegum strewn asphalt and kind of patch, patchworks of stuff um, and as opposed to the, you know, the exquisite playgrounds and bluestones and um, uh, rain gardens and so on of, of North Wharf but what happens inside the property line on, on the kind of private side of, of public space is um, enormously more energetic and I think there is this kind of mistake particular well on both sides of, this, of the fence but particularly and I think often frustratingly on um, on the um, on the municipal side of the fence, and a council that's otherwise, you know, now incredibly kind of visionary, uh, that sees um, public activity that involves a transaction as not being public, and so um, I think uh, you know the fight for public space is as much about where you buy a tomato and where you sit down and and have pastry in the morning as it is about where you walk your dog, um, and um, so you know that that. That was that was a t- kind of two part fight for the city, um, but you're right. Ours is a generation that just f- is not going to be able to live in the way that its parents did. You know, we're, we're just not going to have those houses. We're not going to have those backyards, and um, uh, it's a it's a kind of it's a growing pain for Auckland that just happens to kind of apply to our generation. But it's it's a it's a necessary growing pain. You know, like that. You live in um, the cities that we all um, love and aspire Auckland to be like, and there's no fucking way you live in a kind of quarter-acre paradise, right? Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, the future the future is dense, and um, uh, I think um, uh, we're sort of approaching that critical moment. I feel like it it, it sort of, you know, if I compare it to um, to kind of Britomart as a process of of market kind of transformation and um, uh, a change in kind of people's conceptions about how they use the city and what the future of the city is. I feel like, you know, we're just at the very beginning of that tip for apartment living. One of the really interesting um, uh, observations for me come out of the last couple of years was doing some um, preliminary work in um, what was going to be Oraki Bay Village. And um, we were doing a waterside apartment building there. It was, you know, super unattainable, super expensive thing. Um, but almost all of the buyers were coming out of huge great Remuera villas with an oak tree and a swimming pool in the back garden and a four-car garage. And their number one reason for buying there was that they had a train station in the basement. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that was a really kind of revealing uh, little observation. And so... Um, I think we're probably ready for it. Oh yeah, the the city's growing up phenomenally. It's a currently, I I, I think it's a um, a supply problem. I look at, uh, I, I worked for a company that had offices in Melbourne and Toronto, and the people who were my age in those cities, they all bought condos or apartments because they cost them the equivalent of about three hundred thousand New yeah. Zealand dollars. Yeah. They had really great amenities. They were reliable and nice, and they'd buy one instead of paying rent 
they paid their mortgage off. And then after five years of living there, when they were, you know, 33 or something, they'd then use, sell that, and then that would get them their house in the suburbs. Yep. And here, we have the expensive houses in the suburbs, but none of the none of the midpoint. And instead of people paying off their condo over um, their first six years of their kind of good earning life, they're paying someone's mortgage, and then suddenly they're 33 and poor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I think I think I think that's partly true, and I think partly we have ourselves to blame. You know, like, that was that was Lizzie and I. I think our apartment cost uh, uh, 15, 20 years ago. It cost us. Uh, two or three years of salary mm. um, and uh, it was precisely yes it was selling that that allowed us to um, to move into uh, a kind of uh, shed at the front of somebody's house in the suburb and you know yeah. kind of move outwards from there and so and, then, th- and two or three years of salary that's a really vital point there because now even awful one bedroom apartments are $500,000 in the city <laughs> yeah 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 yes <laughs> yes and uh, yeah look I think um, uh, the supply problem is, a, is you know is a real one and um, uh I like to think that there is a kind of um, an upswelling of uh, uh, kind of intelligence and uh, motivation to kind of start filling that gap. Uh, you know, um, Mark Todd um, from uh, who has this kind of development agency called Ockham, uh, Ockham mm. um, for example. You know, just he's just like this wonderful mix of um, uh, anger and intelligence. Uh, he's sort of like the, the kind of development equivalent of this um, this kid from Milton with the crazy eyes that wanted to make a bar and um, uh, you know I just I want to see him let loose at, at kind of at enormous scale and if we, you know all we need is um, uh, him to take himself to the next level just buildings that uh, are extraordinary bits of software and um, uh, and show Auckland what apartment living really can be like um, and how much of a contribution that can make to its own city and um uh, deliver something that's a kind of apartment equivalent of of, of Britomata, kind of call to arms that the market can't ignore, and um, and I reckon we're away. Yeah, and and this um, this quality commitment that is a real uh, thread across all of this. I'd just like to ask a couple of questions about how you maintain that quality, because one of the things um, you mentioned about the uh, that the reason that 1885 and, and Hanoi struck such a chord is because of that kind of commitment to quality and the, the patrons and the developers that have taken the, the leaps on these projects, whether it's Peter Cooper or the um, Simon and um, James. Yeah, like uh, the, the having that commitment and, and bravery to, to do it. How do you, how do you kind of, um, how do you maintain it and how do you deliver on it against all of the short-term issues like... Um, Cash flow and having to make a buck, or you know, someone someone having their own ideas to bring to the process. <laughs> the, 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 you know, people should always, but maybe they aren't good in an instance. Yeah, look, I think to begin with, we just don't work with people that don't have a long term vision, um, and um, I'd rather have a small studio or no studio at all than um, to make projects that were about kind of um, adding quick value and exiting. I just think. Um, uh, they're really kind of destructive processes for a city. But um, for those who are prepared to kind of um, uh, really sink their teeth into a, into a place, um, uh, they're able to do things that others just, just kind of can't. And so um, uh, amongst all of those people, you just kind of rattled off. And we're doing work with um, Willis Bond, who are, you know, a really different kind of developer, you know, a really long-standing, uh, august developer out of Wellington. We're doing a lot of work with them at Catalina Bay and Hobsonville, shaping the old um, Naval Air Force Base there into a kind of um, uh, 
town centre of sorts, um, they all have a long view. And because of that, um, they can see um, the value of kind of loss leaders that, uh, you know, if you look at Brindamart, it's a a kind of really twisted um, but complete ecosystem where all of that messy heritage stuff around the edge, it makes no sense financially to do that. They're just so expensive um, uh, to rehabilitate those old buildings um, that you just just wouldn't sensibly do it if they were standalone projects. But what, what Brindamart does is it uses that to create value as a place and kind of brand momentum as a quality as a consequence that then it can leverage by building big chunky stuff in the middle with thousands and thousands of square meters of office space where they can get you know a buck extra every square foot and um, and they get an extra couple of floors by doing the heritage work around them that they wouldn't otherwise get well I um, I think they, I mean, they they wish they could yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, uh, I uh, you know that you couldn't afford to um, to do the the beautiful gritty stuff around the edge without the big the big stuff, but the big stuff wouldn't exist without the beautiful gritty bits around the well, edge. Well, wouldn't wouldn't have a soul and wouldn't work. Oh, yeah, and and that as well, yeah. And how do you how do you know when you're on a you know um, I, I wonder you know after early successes as well you know does it become um, overwhelming? How do you keep going? You know, do you, do you ever kind of um, worry about uh, there's this feeling of kind of pace and urgency and um, a need to kind of strike while there was the opportunity uh, in in, in some of the early work but then once you've kind of had a few wins what what replaces that? I I haven't had any wins (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'm not fucking with you you know just um, uh, it just really doesn't doesn't feel like they think that you know we don't have to fight to exist anymore that feels like a win um you know for a long time um uh you know i, I had to get up at and go to work at four in the morning just to 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 continue to exist to stay to kind of stay afloat um but yeah also also to make sure that we didn't waste that opportunity but that opportunity is not fleeting it only kind of scales and you know i'm in the thick now building a tower in the in the city that's kind of everything i ever dreamed of and um what i've discovered really early on is that um uh uh you know through some sort of um i don't know what the mechanisms are but if i just um if i just get up early and i fight like crazy the stuff that i dream of and hope for and fight for it just ends up happening and every time i stop and I go to bed, I miss something. Uh, and so, uh, you know, like now, here we are sitting in this recording studio in this building that's like, you know, a development, um, our first ever development project. It's kind of us um, smoking our own crackers that we're doing with our own uh, money, that which we have done with others for um, for so long. And that's a kind of, um, that's a, a really kind of terrifying and, and brutal um, little process in its own um Right, but just you know, satisfying on a whole other level. Um, uh, you know, the donut shop downstairs, Mian. You know, those gods of pastry. Um, you know, they posted last night a little picture of um, our prime minister buying a, a donut, and you know, in this place that nine months ago was a curtain factory. And um, you know, that I guess what you see in there is, if if I felt like uh, ten years ago, I just had to get get out um, and 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 fight. Now. Um, I get up because I, I want to. Um, Make good on the opportunity you've given yourself to actually uh, realise things. Yeah, but also, you know, not so much that I've given myself, but that the world's given to me. You know, I, I grew up in Freeman's Bay in the 80s. When I was six, I knew that 
um, uh, I understood how extraordinarily um, fortunate I was. Falling in love with a with an endeavor and a pursuit um, that was that of my own father, and so I could kind of clamber up his back and pull on his hair and stand on his shoulders and launch myself from there. And that from that, I could um, kind of stand on this entire pyramid of extraordinary kind of people. And I don't really, I don't really deserve that. Um, uh, it's not, you know, some through some kind of special thing in me that I've I've gained those opportunities. Um, but having gained them, I'm like I'm fucked if I'm going to waste them. What advice do you give to people who, who have that hunger? And and I, I loved seeing in the the semi permanent talk that idea of don't rest. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm qualified to give advice. Um, uh, but yeah, look, that's about all that I've got. I said it before. It's like you got to something has to have happened in your life, or you have to somehow innately be that person for whom um, giving up is harder than trying. And. Um, uh, I don't really have anything other than that. Um, uh, somebody quoted something from Ecclesiastes. I don't really know the Bible, I'm sorry. But uh, uh, at us the other day, and you know, said better to have harmony in one hand than toil in two. And I was like, what the fuck? And I'm like, my life is about toil in two. <laughs> Way better to have toil in two hands than harmony in one. And what does success look like to you? Mm-hmm. I just want to help... Um, my daughter make herself into an extraordinary young woman who has all of the angels but none of my demons. That would be, that's success enough. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Nat Cheshire of Cheshire Architects. It's my privilege. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much to Tina for producing and thank you very much for having us in your ears. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. Brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited, and of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.